the focus of the big change, the significant difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, culminated in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His powerful resurrection, and now the Old Covenant is fulfilled and the New Covenant is in place. Now that's significant for us. We, we will get to know the significance of that hopefully a little bit more by the grace of God and the understanding of His Word as we go through our study this morning. But I just want to begin by saying I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Smile at me. Let me know you're glad to be here. Um, we uh, we tried to sufficiently ply you with coffee and donuts to make sure that everyone has sugared and caffeined up sufficiently to be uh, alert as we go through our study. The reason that we're kind of focusing our, our attention here this morning is because I've had several of you ask me about something that we read last week. And I'm really, really glad. Really, really glad. In fact, I'm really impressed that you said, wait a minute, there's a disconnect here. As we read through the passage of Scripture, there was something that took place that caused some concern or at least some questions to be raised. So to put this in context, we're talking about the champions of the church. We're talking about the shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're talking about a new way of relating to the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit now has been poured out. You remember as we went through the promise in Acts chapter 1 and the fulfillment of that in Acts chapter 2, the signs that accompanied the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, the the sound is of a roaring mighty wind, the ability of the apostles to speak in other languages, languages that they had not studied. And again, the people in mass exalting God, and praising God. Uh, those were signs that something significant had happened. The apostles were even granted the ability to do signs and wonders. People were healed. The demons were cast out. This was this whole period of miracles to give validity, to give God's stamp of approval, so that the people as a whole would know, yes, these are people speaking on my behalf. This is not just a, a another movement. There had been a lot of movements, a lot of so-called messiahs who had come, but this was the real thing. This had the approbation of God. This had the the approval of God as he as he placed his uh, stamp of approval to the miracles that were granted. As we saw the apostles preach, and thousands upon thousands respond and respond in repentance and baptism again, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Then we see the and we can call them deacons. They're not really called deacons in this passage, but they're the kind of forerunner, the incipient deacons. When there was trouble with feeding the widows, they uh, they said that they were to choose seven good and godly men filled with the Spirit from among them to make sure that that ministry was adequately prepared. And so we had those seven men chosen, and then the very next passage we come to one of those. His name is Stephen. And we spent several weeks looking at the biography, if you will, the spiritual biography of Stephen and how God used him in such a mighty way in such a brief period of time to boldly and with courage to go and proclaim the gospel and the significant change that comes in the life of, of in their life, particularly at that time, because now all the Old Testament things that pointed to Christ were fulfilled in Christ. And so uh, Stephen took that message and he took it to the synagogue of the freedmen who were really put out with him. They brought charges against him and then he was brought before the Sanhedrin and there he proclaimed the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah. And as a result of his message, he was put to death. He died. He was martyred. They, they, they gnashed their teeth in, ang teeth in anger and they <coughs> stoned him. They killed him. 
And of course, we went through that study. I won't rehash that now, but the next person that we met is Philip. Now, the, the uh, Jewish, uh, we, uh, Philip uh, was one, I believe, not the disciple Philip or the apostle Philip. I believe he was one of those seven, just like Stephen was. Philip was the second one named in that in that passage. And we find out in the first part of Acts chapter 8 that there was a persecution that was increased and it was led by Saul of Tarsus. And as that persecution increased and the believers were scattered, as the persecution of these disciples of Jesus came and increased in intensity in Jerusalem, they went out. They left Jerusalem. They went through Judea. They went through Samaria. And they went further into the world. It sounds like Acts 1-8, doesn't it? After the Holy Spirit shall come upon you, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. We read that in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They weren't just escaping. They were going as missionaries. Now, I don't know, if you're in South Carolina, you probably are a fan of the University of South Carolina Gamecocks or of the Clemson Tigers. Some of you are not fans of either one. You have another team. Uh, and it's always risky in a church to mention Tigers and Gamecocks. I am a fan of the University of South Carolina Gamecocks. Bravely so. My wife is a fan of the Clemson Tigers and Clemson Tiger football. And we, I did not ask you to wear orange or garnet and black today. So I'd rather not know. I do see some North Carolina colors in here. We'll forgive all of those. <laughs> But when my kids, all three of my kids, registered at Clemson University. And I told them, well, it's like going into the enemy stronghold. You can go, but you need to go as missionaries. (laughs) A light way to say, when these people went out, when they went out from Jerusalem, they weren't just getting away. And they weren't just going to the next career or the next job. They were going as representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ who had saved them. Christ who had made them new. The Holy Spirit who had indwelt them and empowered them. And so they went a variety of different places. And we will find that they went to Antioch. They went to Southeast Asia. They went to Central Asia, north of the Mediterranean. They went to Eastern Europe. And we'll find they even went down to North Africa. We'll see some of that in the coming weeks as the gospel is spread. But one of them, Philip, we have a specific record. He went to Samaria. Now, Samaria is not that far. I mean, it's miles away. It's a couple of days' travel away. But it's not that far. And the Samaritans were not unknown to the Jews. As a matter of fact, they were very well known to the Jews. As a matter of fact, they were maybe too well known. The Jews didn't like them. They didn't think much of them at all. But Philip went to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And when he preached Jesus to them, we find again in Acts chapter 8 that they listened. They paid attention to his message. Now his message, it was sermons. He was preaching. He was proclaiming verbally the word of God. But it was accompanied by the ability that God gave him to perform signs and wonders. And many believed. And as evidence of their belief, many were baptized. We talked last week about Simon Magus. And we're not going to go back and talk to him. But here's one of the things that we read last week. They called several of you to ask me or to follow up with me this week and something I think is really essential that we grasp and that we get. And so we're going to focus on just these few verses, verses 14 through 17, about something unusual that happens. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, 
They sent to them Peter and John. As you know, Peter and John are apostles who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when we read this last week, again, it, it raised red flags. So what, what happened? Well, Philip was preaching the right gospel. He was preaching Christ. There was the right response. They, they received his word. They believed. There was the right baptism. They followed up their belief by baptism, but the Holy Spirit was not granted until days later. And the question is, don't we receive the Holy Spirit when we are born again? When we first get saved, don't we get the Holy Spirit at that point immediately? Of course we do. So what's going on here? Let's make sure that we understand why this happens. And some of you know, this is not the only time this happens where it seems like there's a a second movement or a later coming of the Holy Spirit upon people. In Acts chapter 19, we come across a band of wandering disciples. They're called disciples. And they and the Apostle Paul comes across them. And, uh, and this is Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Apollos was at Corinth. And Apollos had been preaching there and the word of God was being spread. Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. Again, we're talking about Ephesus of Asia. And there he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, then into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul, again, he explains here, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And what happened? They began speaking in languages and tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. It seems like things are out of order. Isn't that wrong? Don't you get saved? Holy Spirit indwells you, fills you, and then you get baptized as a testimony of that. And that begins this Christian walk. That begins this life of being Christ. What's taking place here? We need to understand this. We need to remember, again, there's some other things that I'll point us to in a moment. Remember when Philip went to, I mean Philip, when Peter went to the Roman centurion in Caesarea? Philip was on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house and God gave him a vision. He brought down this net, this sheet filled with what he would have classified as unclean animals and God said, get up and eat. And Peter said, not me, Lord. In all my life, I've never eaten anything that was unclean. I followed the rules. I do it. That is unclean. I'm not going to mess with it. And God told him what I call clean, let no man call unclean. How many times did that take place on Simon the Tanner's roof? Three times. Do you ever have to be told something more than once before it starts to take root? I want you to understand what was taking place here. And it's important that we Understand what's taking place with the coming of the Holy Spirit and why it matters. Well, God had told um, the Roman centurion to in, in Caesarea, go and send for Peter. And, and after this vision, after this affirmation from the Holy Spirit of God, they come and knock on his door and Peter goes with them. And these are Gentiles. These are Italians. These are Romans. These are not God's chosen people. These are not the Jews to whom were promised the Messiah. And 
And yet Peter comes and he preaches to them Christ and what happens? They believe. They believe they are. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God and they too experience the ability to speak in other languages. They too experience these same signs that, that was at Pentecost. And so what we have are these affirmations of things that are taking place uh, that are really special, important for, for us to understand in this transformation, in this change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It's confusing. And the result of this confusion, recorded in the book of Acts, that some things are different, that there are some exceptions to the way that the Bible speaks, has been a problem. It's caused some um, doctrines to be developed and taught, particularly over the last 100 to 120 years, that do not stand the test of Scripture. When we talk about the Holy Ghost, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, a lot of us good Baptists are like, oh, let's talk about Jesus. We love Jesus. We know he died on the cross for us and that his blood was shed and we're washed in the blood. Let's talk about the Father. We know that he's the Father of lights, that he's the giver of all good gifts, that he's seated on his throne in glory and majesty. But when we get to this Holy Spirit stuff, that's a little weird. And so we tend to back away from understanding that. And that's a problem for us. The problem for us is because when we don't approach Scripture right, when we don't approach Scripture with a good understanding of what it means to be a believer and how to understand the truth about the Holy Spirit, then we miss what God has intended for our lives. Jesus, when he was preparing the disciples for his departure, said, I'm going, but another of the same kind is coming, and he'll bring to remembrance everything that I've told to you. He will fill you. He has been with you. Now he will be in you. And for us to experience life as God intends for us to experience life, for us to be a part of God's mission as God intends for us to be used as vessels and instruments of righteousness for His glory. We have to understand what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit of God. And we have to be careful that we do not become uh, deceived, that we don't get off track with doctrines that are not true. I will tell you one of the things that really concerns me about misunderstanding how what's taking place in the book of Acts is there there comes this this doctrine whether conscious or unconscious whether proclaimed or not proclaimed that lots of people believe but only a few are really good Christians you've got this kind of entry-level Christianity oh yeah I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I pray I'll get baptized and I'll put my name on a roll and you're just kind of a, a nominal Christian a Christian in name and your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life and it's heaven when you die. But you can pretty much, you know, stumble along and do the best you can and live like you want to. But then there are those super Christians, those really devout Christians, those who feed upon the Word of God, and those who are filled with the Spirit of God. And those have this second level of experience of some kind or second blessing. Have you guys ever heard of a second blessing or a second tier Christianity or something that happens... Doesn't happen to every Christian, but some Christians get something more. And I want to tell you, that's just not true. It's not true according to Scripture. It is one of those doctrines that for many years, many Baptists kind of embraced, many from our tribe, our group, and I'm a Baptist, so I'll talk about us. I know us best. We kind of embraced because we had regular Christians. We had those who would come to church on Sunday morning, come to church on Sunday night, come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, give tithes and offering. But during the week, we, we made no difference for the kingdom of God. We just kind of looked like the world, acted like the world, talked like the world, and we excused it. We said, oh, those are just immature Christians. Those are just regular Christians. 
And we want you to move from being regular Christians to being varsity Christians. Go from the JV to the varsity. And, and there's this, and I, I want you to understand that there's one classification of Christians in this level. There's one classification of Christians. When you get saved, you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. You have all of God that God has to offer. And He takes more and more of you as you walk, as you continue to grow in your relationship with Him. Now, for us to understand this passage, we need to understand something about reading Scripture. It is important that we handle Scripture well. Do you guys remember Paul's exhortation to Timothy? Study to show yourself approved. Unto God, a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. I want to give you some, uh, some, some. they're called hermeneutical principles. Don't get put off by that. It just means things that you need to take into consideration when you begin to study the word of God. And, 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 and the first of these three principles for helping us understand scripture accurately is the first of these is context is king. Context matters. You do not read a passage of Scripture and take it out of its literary context or take it out of its historical context or take it out of, of where it lands in history. You have to know the context of what is taking place. Scripture was written by God, the Holy Spirit, through 40 men over 1,500 years, and it covers the time period from creation till eternity, the end of the age. It records and speaks specific events and people. Uh, and describes people through time. It is important that you not lift out of Scripture a phrase or a verse or a series of verses out of the context in which it was written in order to apply it, understand it, or create a doctrine off of it. There there are so many examples of it. There are so many examples of this. How many of you can quote Philippians 4.13? You with me? I can do... Excellent. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm going to run a marathon next Saturday. Come join me. And you can, if you believe, because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Is that a good interpretation of that scripture? No. But I got it on a t-shirt. And that's kind of a light example. But people create whole denominations by taking a phrase and pulling it out of context and saying, well, this is what the Word of God says and they make it say something that it never said. What is the context of Philippians 4.13? The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi is thanking them for their generosity toward him, them. And he said, and I thank you not because of the benefit it was to me. It was a benefit to me. But I thank you not because it was a benefit to me. I thank you because it's a benefit to you. Because I've learned something. I've learned that when there is plenty, and i got food to eat and a place to stay and a warm place to sleep, safe place to lay my head. I've learned to glorify God in that. Not to be proud in that, not to depend upon it, but to glorify God in that. I've also learned that when I don't have anything, when there is no food to eat and no place of safety, when I am without and destitute and alone, to be content and to trust my God. I can do all things through Christ. Does that make sense? And so context is king. Be careful. Be careful. Uh, I did have a friend one time at the uh, deaf church in South Texas that said we can't have dogs. You can have cats. You can't have dogs. Because in Colossians it says beware those dogs. And of course they weren't talking about dogs 
at all. It was not in, in Colossians. So you need to ask questions like, who wrote it? To whom it was written? When was it written? In the broader scope of history, why was it written? Why, what What is, is being addressed here? You need to understand the context. That's why when we do the seven arrows of biblical and how to understand the Bible, one of the things we ask is, what did they hear? What did this passage mean to the original audience? Uh, Gordon Fee, in his book on harmony, puts it like this. The Bible never says today what it didn't say back then. We need to know what it said back then. So we know how to apply it for what it says today. The second way to handle Scripture rightly is to recognize that while all of Scripture is written to you, not all of it is normative for you. And I'm using that terminology on purpose. While not all of it, while all of it is indeed written to you, well, you, the scripture is, is written and preserved and given to you. Not all of it is normative for you. All the scripture is written to you. That's why we read through the Bible again and again. It's a congregation. We're currently in First Kings, by the way, chapter 5, which is a great passage of scripture. Uh, and, then, of course, this week we'll be reading Psalm chapter 6 through Psalm chapter 12, one a day this week. But not all scripture is normative. Not all scripture is a command. I'm going to try not to make you jump. How's that? Not all scripture is is a command to you, which means simply that every example is not to be followed. There are some examples that you're supposed to not follow in scripture. There are statements and examples that we are given to learn from, but to rightly handle scripture, we must interpret the Bible in the way that it was written. You interpret parables as parables, symbols as symbols, poetry as poetry. Narrative and didactic literature as what it is. Historical narrative as historical narrative. Letters and instructions and commands as letters, instructions, and commands. The principle of interpretation is the interpret is the same principle that we use when we read to understand anything. What was being written and how is it being written? Let me just give you an example. In just a few short chapters, or in, in a few short weeks, we're going to come upon the conversion experience of the Apostle Paul. Saul, the terrorist, becomes Apostle Paul, the great missionary. How does he meet Christ? You guys remember, he's on the road to Damascus. And the Holy Spirit, I mean, the Lord Jesus speaks to him, a bright light. He hears a voice. Those around him hear a noise. They don't know what he said. He is on horseback. He comes off of his horse. Scales cover his eyes. He becomes blinded. Now, if that were normative, where's your horse? Do you have to have a bright light to be saved? Do you have to audibly hear the voice of the Holy of Jesus Christ when 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 you when you get saved? When you, you understand what I'm saying? That is a experience that's recorded for a benefit, but it's not the normative experience. There are components of that that are. You aren't saved until you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. You aren't saved until he until he radically transforms your life, which is what salvation is by making you something new. And so, when we come to passages that raise questions like this one. Because obviously not all passages are equally clear. We seek to understand the less clear passages by studying those that are more clear. And that takes us to the third point here. Uh, scripture interprets Scripture. The Bible is a unity. How many authors are in the Bible? Depends. More than 40 men, kings and paupers, over 1,500 years, but there's one author. The Holy Spirit of God. 2 Peter 2, 2 Timothy, one author. 
All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that the man of God, the person, the child of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished into every good work. And so with that unity, we understand that if there is a challenge or something we have that's not clear when we look at a single verse or event or statement, we don't look at it in a vacuum. We must look at it in the context of all of scripture. Uh, the, uh, the principle, the hermeneutical principle, if you want, again, I'm going to go back to Gordon Fee. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And so it is important today as we take time to understand the work of the Holy Spirit at the launch of the church, that we understand it in such a way that we're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine that comes, but we understand how to pursue truth. Now, all of that is the introduction. Are you ready? (laughs) All right, seriously. Because here's what we're asking. Why? Did the Holy Spirit come late to Samaria? Why did the Holy Spirit come late to these disciples of John? Why, at Pentecost, we had these miracles of great and mighty rushing wind and the, and the ability to speak in other languages and these prophesying or exalting the name of God that happened then and happened at Caesarea? Why is that not the norm today? Uh, what's going on? Do you indeed receive the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit poured out upon you and come to enjoy you at the point of salvation? The answer is yes. And so I'm going to take us through a series of scriptures. They should be the references written down somewhere for you. If not, I would encourage you to write these down. We're going to go quick because we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages of scripture. But it is indeed true, according to the testimony of scripture, that you receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writing to, in Romans 8, is a chapter you ought to memorize. Paul says to the church at Rome, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. If you are, if you are saved, if you are a believer, you have the spirit of God. What is the next phrase? Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Everyone who is saved has the spirit of Christ. Amen? Very simple, very clear. First, I'm going to go to a couple of different passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writing to the church at Corinth is describing them and their body, what it means to be the body of Christ. And he says, just as the body, this is chapter 12, verse 12 and 13. Just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And here's verse 13. For in one spirit, We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, this is important because this is a radical change from Jewish expectation in the day. And what Paul is saying is that every believer, regardless of your background, nationality, if you are a believer, if you have been regenerated, if you are made new, then you have been placed into the body of Christ. And the evidence of that is the spirit. You are in the spirit. What about even the act of salvation? Titus chapter 3 verse 5. You aren't saved apart from the Spirit of God. You are not saved apart from the presence and the working of the Spirit of God. In Titus chapter 3 verse 5, it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit who makes you new. Amen? Abundantly clear. In 1 John chapter 4.13, 
First John is written, by the way, if you're curious if you're saved or not, if you're struggling with assurance of salvation, go to First John. He writes these things that you may know that you have life, that you may know that you have life in His Son. But in 1 John 4, 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, that we have life, that we have the Lord Jesus Christ, because He has given us of His Spirit. I won't take you to Romans 5 or Galatians 3. But Romans 5, 5, write that down. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, write that down. We are begun by the Spirit. We are birthed by the Spirit of God. So when you are saved, according to the testimony of Scripture, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. So why is it different in Acts chapter 8 and in Acts chapter 19? Good question, right? Can it be different? Does it shift and change? We need to understand a few things about what's going on. Let's go to historical context. We are talking about a seismic shift in the mindset of every Jewish person who had any religious affiliation and was still practicing any of the historical Jewish religion. It is a massive transition. It is transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It is transition from the sacrifice of animals as worship to the one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that satisfied the righteous requirements of God once and for all. It is a transition from the priestly system where they were mediated between the Jews and God to one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a massive shift, massive shift from the Jews as the people of God and everybody else as not. You get that, right? Jews, a distinct people. God's people. Everybody else, not. Now the Jews were to be light and they were to be witness. And we have even in the lineage of Christ, we have Canaanites. We have Rahab the harlot in the lineage of Christ. We have, we have the Moabite, uh, Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, in the lineage of Christ. We have, we, there were all of these testimonies of uh, the Jews were supposed to be a light unto the nations, but it was a different way now. This is completely, radically different now because no longer are the Jews simply the Jews, the national Jews, the people of God. Now Jesus has come to create a new people. And yes, they are Jews, but there's more than that. You remember in John chapter 10, I am the shepherd, we have the sheep, the sheep are in the fold. You guys remember that whole passage of Scripture? Thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Uh, Jesus says in, in John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, I have sheep that you don't know of, sheep from another fold. And he goes on, and he's talking to the Jews. I know they're sitting there thinking, I don't have any idea what he's talking about. And he goes, you know, but they're taking notes and they're learning. And then all of a sudden, now we have this transition that the Jews are no longer only the Jews, God's people. Christ died not only for the Jews, he's the Messiah, not only for the Jews, which was their mindset until now, he is the Messiah for the world. And we have a hard time grasping the significance of that change. It was a significant time of, the, of transition. There was a passion for the Jews to have a protected identity as God's people. And frankly, there was a lot of animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews for centuries. The Samaritans were those of those northern tribes. And those northern tribes, they, they didn't stay pure. They intermarried. And when they intermarried, they adopted a lot of the religious worship and a lot of the religious practices and the false gods of those nations they intermarried with. And so the Jews said, if you're a Samaritan, you can't even come on the temple grounds. 
And when a Jew would travel, this is interesting because Galilee's in the north, Jerusalem's in the south, Samaria's in the middle. When the Jews would travel, they'd go around. They didn't want to be defiled by interaction with the Samaritans. Didn't want to. Massive. And where does the Holy Spirit send Philip? Straight to Samaria. I love that. (laughs) Took him to a place that was uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for him. Uncomfortable for them. And we see this, this, this animosity being expressed. And now we see the grace of God being communicated to them through the gospel. And when the Jews in Jerusalem hear about it, what do they do? You remember? You mean they're responding to the gospel too? Is this real? We can't trust the Samaritans. Let's send Peter and John. And so they send not just Jewish representatives from Jerusalem to verify that this was indeed a genuine work of the Holy Spirit. They sent apostles And they did not just send apostles. They sent Peter and John, the ones who preached at Pentecost, the ones who preached in the temple courtyard. I mean, these were kind of like the the lead, the ones who had the most credibility with the people and the ones who would be the most skeptical, the ones who would examine it the closest. All right. And so Peter and John go, and they go to assist Philip, I'm sure, with his proclamation of the gospel, but they go to verify that this is really what's taking place here. And Philip has preached Christ, and people have believed, and they have been baptized, but God gives us basically what I would call, other theologians, or theologians, some theologians have called it, a Samaritan Pentecost. A validation to the Jews, but I mean, a validation to the people there, but also a validation to the Jews that yes, these Samaritans who have been outcasts and strangers to which they have been hostility and there had been hostility, now they can be a believer as well. They have the same Holy Spirit we have. They have the same access to God that we have. They are part of the same body that we have. And as evidence of that, uh, back in Acts chapter 8, um, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard Samaria receive the word, they sent them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and then they received the Holy Spirit. And then, verse 18, Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles. What did he see? The Spirit is invisible. I believe he saw the same signs and wonders. I believe that he saw the same ability to speak in tongues. I believe that he saw the same prophesying or the same exalting of the Lord Jesus Christ that we saw in Caesarea at the coming of the Holy Spirit that we saw in Acts chapter 19 with the wandering disciples at the coming of the Holy Spirit. And it is a verification and a validation, a transitional time, but a verification and a validation to change the Jewish believers' minds that the Messiah is not simply the Jewish Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And what God was telling them through this, the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans, is that if you are a Samaritan, you can be a Christian. If you are a Roman centurion, you can be a Christian. If you are a Hellenistic Jew, you can be a Christian. These are exceptions um, that take place in this order at this time to accomplish a purpose 
which is to declare to the world that the Christian church is made up of people of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. And no person, because of their nationality or because of geography, is beyond the reach of the Holy Spirit of God. It's a means of validating the message. So what about us? Do we have to wait on a second blessing before we experience the power of the Holy Spirit? No, we don't. As we have just read in all these passages of Scripture that we looked at in Romans, that we looked at in Titus, that we looked at Colossians, that we will look at as you go through the Scripture, you will see that when you come to Christ in repentance and faith, it is the Holy Spirit who washes you, cleanses you, who makes you part of the family of God. And He comes to indwell you. To emphasize this and the radical change this was, again, John 10, 16, Jesus said, I have other sheep not of this fold. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul is explaining to the Jewish Christians and to the Gentiles their identity in Christ. And he says, you once were far off, hostility. And then there were God's Jews who had the oracles of God. And now it's neither Jew nor Gentile. Now it is one in the family of God, a new thing, church. You have Paul talking to the church at Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1. Uh, Starting in verse 18, you've got the Gentiles described through verse 32. Pick up in chapter 2 and he's talking to the Jews. And he says, Jew and Gentile alike have one means of salvation. One means, and that is the perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Equally in need of salvation. Whether you're a Jew who has the law, you should know you need salvation because you have the law and you didn't keep it. Whether you're a Gentile and you have not been exposed to the oracles of God, you should know because God has given you a conscience and He's given you revelation through very nature that there is an issue that needs to be addressed. You are separated from God. Jew and Gentile alike, you both need the gospel. You both need the Savior. And there is one Savior, Jesus Christ, and you both come to Him the same way. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, 24, 25, 26. Romans chapter 4, the same way Abraham did, the same way David did. You come to Him one way in repentance and faith and the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news, folks. That is great news. When we are saved, everyone needs the same Savior. We are at 123 Arlington Avenue right now. Within a mile of us are black people and white people and Hispanic people and Asian people and Pacific Islanders. Those I know live in this area. We've done demographic studies and we've met and talked to them. There are rich people, people I would call rich. There are poor people, people who have trouble making ends meet and worry about food. There are people who have a strong nuclear family and a strong nuclear family tradition. You know what I mean? Husband, wife, children, grandchildren, grandparents that they can connect with, grandchildren that they can take care of. And there are those whose families have been so caught up in in challenges and difficulty and in, in, in trials and struggles, some of it of their making, some of it not of their making at all, that there's no concept of a nuclear family, either a single parent or a grandparent raising kids or sometimes an aunt, an uncle, a relative raising kids, and you don't have those familial connections. We have a man in this neighborhood who recently moved here from Germany. We have a man in this neighborhood who has uh, lived here for about seven years. He's from France. We have the world at our doorstep. And they all need to be saved. And there's not a nationality line. There's not a language line. There's not an economic line. There's not a social line. There is one line. 
It is a line of yieldedness, of coming to Christ, belief and faith, repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's good news. That's good news. And we get to tell them. We get to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is really kind of the end of the sermon here. I'm going to give you seven points in seven minutes. Can we do it? (laughs) We need to understand the work of the Holy Spirit in you. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Let's talk about the mission. We may not make it to seven points. All right, We may may stop with three. I got seven in your outline, I think. You can look them up. But the first thing that the Holy Spirit does, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, whether you have a religious background or a pagan background, regardless of your nationality, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does when He comes to you by the proclamation of God's Word and the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life is He brings awareness that something's wrong. The Holy Spirit, the Bible calls it conviction. When Jesus was telling the disciples the work of the Holy Spirit in John uh, chapter 16, He says, listen, I'm going to go. He's going to come. It's to your advantage that I go away because this guy, his, his name is Helper. The Helper is going to come to you and when he comes, he's going to do something. He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. What does that mean? He's going to make the world know that there's a problem. He's going to make every one of us know. He's going to make people know that there is a need to be saved. Do you understand the biggest barrier that people have to in response to the gospel? You cannot respond to the good news of Christ until and unless you recognize the bad news that you are separated from God by your sin. And that's job number one of the Holy Spirit. If you're here and you're a believer, at some point you became aware that you weren't and that you needed to be saved. Are you with me? Here's the good news. In this neighborhood, this community, and in your family, and in your neighbors around your house, the Holy Spirit's job to make them know that they need a Savior. He'll use you. As you proclaim the Word of God and as you display what it means to walk and walk filled with the Spirit of God, the difference in you will become a witness and a testimony to them, and your words become a testimony to them. So He convicts, but He also cleanses. We read Titus 3 5. He saved us, Jesus saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of of the Holy Spirit. We're made new in the Holy Spirit of God. What is this? It's salvation. He makes us new. He regenerates us. He saves us. Man, we could spend a lot of time here. But this is the good news. It is the Holy Spirit that says, hey, you're lost. If you continue like you're going right now, not only are you going to have a life apart from God on this earth, you're going to have an eternity separated from God, facing the consequences of your own sin. And it's not going to be a party. It's going to be torment. But there is a means of salvation, a person who saves, and he is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit turns that on, and as we respond to him in repentance and faith, he washes us, and he makes us new, and he gives us relief. This is what the psalmist talks about when he says, Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Cleanse me, wash me, and I will celebrate, and I will rejoice. And you know what it's like to rejoice in the forgiveness that comes from God. So just conviction and cleansing. And there are so many things. Love, we love one another, that's enabled by the Holy Spirit. Colossians chapter 1, the ability to serve, serve the kingdom of God, serve the church of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, those are gifts as assigned by the Spirit. Witness, you shall be witnesses 
of me. Jesus told the disciples, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the most parts of the earth. Well, I don't know what to say. Guess what? The Holy Spirit tells you what to say. Have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to somebody and 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 all of a sudden the Lord brings to remembrance or brings to mind a sentence, a statement, a thought that you're then able to share? It's what Jesus told the disciples when he sent out the twelve in Matthew chapter ten. He said, "Man, you're you're going to <laughs> you're going to be called before kings and and princes. You're going you're going to be in some pretty tough situations, but don't worry about it. The Holy Spirit will give you knowledge. He'll give you the things that you are to say." Uh, so another promise and working of the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, He gives us hope. John 14, He gives us peace. Romans 8, 13, He gives us holiness. And that's kind of where we're going to end this. Here's what I want you to understand about the Holy Spirit. We see in Acts chapter 8, in Samaria, that they heard the gospel and they believed and they were baptized, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit until there was apostolic affirmation by Peter and John that they were hearing the gospel, that this was God's work, and then... God used them to affirm to them and to the Jews in Jerusalem, the church, that this was indeed that they were all part of the same body because of the transition, because of the change, because of what was taking place. We see it in Acts chapter 19. But the practice, those are exceptions. The practice and the promise of Scripture is that when the Holy Spirit makes you aware of your lostness and you respond in repentance and faith, even that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Your drawing, your enlightenment, even that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. When you respond in repentance and faith, then He makes you new and He cleanses you. And then He calls you to do something that you can't do. The whole Christian life is to live in a way that you can't live apart from the power of God in you. And if we had time, we'd go to Ephesians and talk about all the goodness of God that is available to us Today, you don't have to wait to be used by God. This is not second-tier Christianity. You don't graduate to the next level. It is a process of continually learning truth and continually being yielded and filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? Good news, isn't it? Good news. Good news that we can depend upon. We must depend upon God's Holy Spirit to accomplish His purpose and His work in us.